called my mom and got my number. So he called me up and he's like, hey, why don't you come work with me in Austin on, you know, the next Ultima game? And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I might have used a stronger word than that. Because, uh, you know, this is like, you know, sure. my game design. You know, I'd never heard of Sid Meier, but boy, had I heard of Richard Garriott. Yeah. And... Uh, and so I was like all like, oh man, moral problems. Hi everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Brian Reynolds, who co-founded Firaxis Games and Big Huge Games. He is best known for his design work on strategy games like Colonization, Civilization II, Alpha Centauri, and Rise of Nations. Yeah, and I haven't even opened it up yet. Um, Have you played the game, though? Oh, it's quite a good game. I've only played it, like, twice, but... Yeah, I've heard um, Nick Carp when he came through here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, oh, was like, yeah. <laughs> got, got his seal of approval. He was like, "Yeah, that's." He said he thought Hannibal was the best, the best war game ever made. Uh, it is. It's one of the greats. I, so I have a really good for a gaming friend who, uh, unfortunately, is way down in Northern Virginia, and he's like a, you know, lieutenant colonel in the Naval Reserves, doing like bizarre intelligence or signals intelligence that kind of crap so um really smart guy and that he goes and plays in like the world championships of that right wow (laughs) so he's just like i mean the number of games he must have played in that one game but uh, yeah yeah it's definitely something that people that like war games that they take that one very seriously i'm eager to try it out i love the ancient i love the subject matter and it's nice to look at the map where you can tell that they've you know, it's not like they just built this giant hex map, right? right? They thought about these are the important points and these yeah. are the connections, and uh, it's card driven, right? Anyway, exactly, it is exactly. Yeah. Yes, so. it's the same. What they they had done a Revolutionary War game before they did that. Yeah, they we have the a, people, a few different, yeah, 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 which is actually not as good. Mm-hmm. I've played that too, but this was the one that, and they made some more after that I haven't played that might be really good. But, right. Uh, have you played Twilight Struggle? No, heard of, but I don't think okay. I played that. Yeah. Because I think that's sort of part of that same lineage, card driven. It, it might be based. one of the later versions uh, of there. Yeah. yeah, Twilight Struggle is like the the uh, NATO. Well, not NATO. It's like well, it's I guess it is. It's you know Soviet Union versus Cold US War, Cold right. War. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a great game, um, and I think it's I think it's the number one game on Board Game Geek, actually. Um, but all right, so all right. let's let's get started here. So uh, what I usually start out with is what's the first video game you remember. The first video game I remember, uh, well, it was Pong, um, for sure, and it was, you know, I was a fairly small kid of some age. I don't even remember what year Pong came out, because it came out in that sort of, you know, sub-seven-years-old level of time when it's just some really cool things. I remember that, and then I remember uh, going... Being, you know, going to the arcade at the shopping mall, and you know, it was mostly full of pinball machines. But when Space Invaders had just come out, and playing Space Invaders, lining up to get to play Space Invaders. So, uh, the earliest video games I remember would, would I guess, be Pong and, and Space Invaders. Um, computer games, 
first time I saw, you know, a personal computer that had a game on it. I mean, I, I always wanted one of those Atari, I called it a Sears video arcade, but, it, you know, it's what we would now remember as an Atari game. But right. It sold through Sears and the Sears catalog in those days when we wanted to ask our parents for things. And I still remember that it was uh, $178 for one, and I was never allowed to have one. <laughs> like, I never, ever got to have one. I always wanted one of those. That was that was what I wanted. Um, but somewhere around somewhere around fifth grade for me, uh, their TRS-80s came to my elementary school. Okay. And by TRS-80s, I mean maybe like two, you know, one for the fifth grade and one for the sixth grade. And they were in the math teacher's room, and they were this hallowed device that mm-hmm. only people that were favored of the math teacher, you know, would get to right. touch or anything. And so I never got, I wasn't in her homeroom, so I wasn't favored of the math teacher. I could just see that it was there, but I could remember, like, once in the entire school year, getting to kind of be in the room when it was being touched and kind of seeing some little thing happen. And I think it was like a level one TRS-80, which was such a, you know, bad system for gaming that the only way they could get real-time keyboard input was, like, they would put the cursor in the in the middle, in some place in the screen, and they would draw a pixel to the left of it and a pixel to the right of it, and if you hit the space bar, the cursor would move forward, print over the little pixel they had put there, or clear the character, so then you could, like, peek at the memory and see if the character was gone, You'd then you'd know that the player had gone right. Like, that was the only way wow. you could get... It was that. That, that was how grim a level one terrace city was. But I can remember, yeah, it was like a go-left-go-right thing, and you go down the track of the, at the race thing, and it, I mean, it was, you know, it was some kind of absolutely awful, terrible, but utterly fascinating to me. Right. And so I went through elementary school basically not now, being did you, allowed to touch those things. So when you saw a computer... Now, when you compared what was in the arcade to a computer at that point, there was a pretty stark difference. Right? I, well, I think if you looked back objectively now, you'd see a stark difference. But what I remember, you know, what comes back to me from mm-hmm. being nine and ten years old uh, was just, I want that. Right. Uh, so the idea that you could do something in a computer and make this, right. you, know, you could do, you, you respond make your to- own game or something, that was really powerful. Right. And so you immediately were thinking about, yeah. like, I, you know, I can do something with this machine. Yeah, absolutely. Creative and so this. then I think in seventh grade, I was in some, you know, talented student program some days. And, I, and there was this brief period where I got to learn enough basic to actually touch one and program one and knew that I loved it. And then in eighth grade, I went to a different school and there was one, again, in a math teacher's room. But you could go after school, and if you got there first, you could just sit for an hour or an hour and a half until the math teacher went home and just play with a TRS-80. And so that was the, the true beginning of... Uh, and I made a game. Um, no, would this be in... I, I didn't... I never... I, I had a Commodore. That was where my background well, was. Well, yeah, but so like, you're younger it, than I am, so you got yeah. to have a good computer. <laughs> this, was a, speaking, this was still a, this was a level two yeah. TRS-80. This would be so about 1980, is that right? Uh, let's see. So I went eighth grade, yeah, 80, 81 right. was like my year. And so sometime during there, I managed to, you know, all of my lawn mowing money and right. grandparent money and whatever, I managed to accumulate into a wad enough to pay for half of a what was called a Model 3 TRS-80, which right. was this kind of new version of the, but it was the same old basic idea, a very familiar machine to me, and I actually, so I had my own 
one for the very first time, and my parents wouldn't let me have it in the bedroom, so we had to have this other separate room so that it was somehow, it was as if, quote-unquote, the whole family's computer, but right. I was the only one that <laughs> ever touched it. But on my spring break of, um, of eighth grade, um, I wrote a game... It was basically my attempt. I, I had been over to, you know, some of my friends, you know, had doctors for parents, so they had cool computers called Apple IIs, right. <laughs> and they had color and all this. And I had been over there, and I had seen a friend of mine had a game called Temple of Apshai, which yep. was an epics game. It was, you know, a wander through the thing, and a little monster attacks you, and you, then you go back to the town, and you buy more, and you go in. I was like, okay. I want that game, and, right. and you know I couldn't afford to buy a game. I think they actually probably had that game for the TRS-80, but I couldn't afford to buy it or have it, and uh, uh, so I just decided well, I'm going to write one for myself. <laughs> and so I made a game, and and I called it Quest One, and it right. was exactly that same idea. You went through the thing, went through the dungeon. A different monster appeared in each room. Yeah. You could fight it with either arrows or melee, and then. Um, and this was in, get some treasure. This would be in basic. Or it in basic. Okay. And back in those days, you could um, they had these magazines like Creative Computing, yep. Softside, and stuff. Where what they did, you know, this was before the internet and cheap electronic media, you know, and and really even most people having floppy disks for that matter. And so right. what they would do is they would in the pages of the magazine they would print out. A program, yep. and you would type in the program, yep. and you would get a million typos in it, and it wouldn't work. And so you have to debug this thing that you typed in, and yeah. you read, read through the magazine. What did I do wrong? Why didn't it work? Well, I sent my Quest One game off to um, off to one of these magazines, okay. and uh, yeah, just out of random, you know. Uh, young middle school kid fearlessness, you know, of course they will want this game because I wrote it. Right. And and it turned out they did want the game. And <laughs> they paid me, you know, I know that on the podcast you can't see the Dr. Evil gesture, but they paid me $100, $100 <laughs> right. uh, in for, 1981, in money. 1981 money, you know, which is probably, you know, uh, $200, $300. Now, anyway, it was a lot of money for a 13 Sure, yeah. Uh, and I promptly reinvested that in memory, more memory. So I had a right. 16K yeah. TRS-80, and it I turned into now. a 48K. <laughs> right. And, and so I immediately um, actually turned out to sabotage myself for making any more money on games because once you had 48K... Well, nobody else had 48K. Uh, you know, I, I, had, I had taken myself out of the market. It was like early lesson in, well, nobody it, yeah. wants a game that takes 48K. Right. They only want games to take 16K because that's what most people had. So, yeah, it was just an early lesson in, you know, platform limitations wow. and market funny. funnel size and, right, and right. that sort of thing. Um, I, I think eventually it paid me a second $100 to reprint that on floppy disk or something. But anyway, that was my early, my very early career. Uh, I then, I made a, I had always wanted to make what I, in those days we called a machine language adventure, because there were these adventure, text adventure games, and they started making them really in what is technically assembly language, but in those days, when terminology was less exact, we called it a machine language adventure game, and 
always wanted to write one. So I actually wrote an entire adventure game in assembly language, and I sent so that. Adventure games me. means like a text, text adventure. My text, text adventure, so sort of like the Colossal Cave or Zork, sure. or it was in that genre. There was a guy named Scott Adams who did a whole bunch of those games, yep. had a whole series, and and I was sort of. You know, into those, but I like. I, I also, you know, my dad would take me to work, and I'd go into PDP Eleven and play the Colossal Cave. So I was familiar with those games too. And anyway, wrote some of that. Wrote one. Wrote a bunch in Basic, but then I decided I'm going to write a machine language adventure because you know I'm that. I'm just that cool. And so I wrote a big old thing, and I sent it away to Avalon Hill, and uh, and they sent me back a contract and said, okay, well, you know, we'll pay you five percent of this, and you know, sign up and go and. Uh, so I signed it, and so I thought, as I thought, I'd kind of sold another game. But then they decided, ah, TRS eighty, not important. So they, they uh, that was my first canceled game. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you moved through the stages really quickly. Yeah, yeah no, I learned all the learned all the hard lessons in in middle school and, and early high school. But wow. uh, so that's where I came to video games. That's a long answer okay. to what well, was probably a shorter intended. No, that's question, that's but. that's great to hear. I remember, I definitely remember that period of you know getting the game magazines, looking mm-hmm. at the the games in the back and. I definitely understand that that phase of like you know if you want a game you just sometimes you have to make it yourself or you just have to. I think that was maybe the key thing that you know made those of us that grew up in that generation who we are is that is that idea that if you want a game you got to make it yourself and that you should make it yourself and that you can make it yourself and of course you know with graphics and whatever fidelity has grown higher I think it's a lot more daunting to. Go in, you know. I would look at games that were being made in the '80s, and I would think, "Boy, these look like crap." You know, yeah. even even I can make art like this, and and so there was this sense of, "Oh, of course I can do this," because they're so bad right. um, looking and sometimes playing, uh, and you know, some of that was just, you know, um, overestimating how much I could do. Sure. <laughs> uh, but but it was a healthy thing, and I think to you know, it's, it's harder today to look at console game and think, oh, I could totally make one of these. I mean, maybe there's some people that sure. that figure it out. And of course, now there's other tools, and so you can, you know, it's easier to stand on the shoulders of, of those who've gone before you and use these tools and toolkits and, and free things you can download. And so you can actually do a whole lot on a, on a cheap budget, but it's not as instantly intuitive that you should just be making your own games as I think it used to be. Sure, yeah. And there was, you know, there was... Such terrible distribution networks for getting games to people yeah. back then, and like right. you know, like <laughs> there might be games, but there's, there's no way you could get them, or the people who are interested in buying the games don't have the money to buy them. Right, and you know, yep. um, it was it was a strange time. It was, and I think it, it, the other thing in those days, I sort of felt like, and this is all through junior high and high school, making any it, it was sort of all blurred together to me whether I was making a game or making you know, an email program or a BBS or... You were, doing, you were doing all those things? I was doing all of those things. Okay. Uh, my high school got a PDP-11 donated to it, uh-huh. um, and I had actually used one and taught myself Fortran out of the manual at my father's office, right. uh, you know, when I was in junior high. So it came, and I knew how to run the thing, and none of the teachers or anybody... I was the only one in the whole, you know, campus that actually knew anything about it. And so that turned into, I actually wrote the email program for the school. I wrote wow. a BBS that we ran for years back when BBSs were a thing. Uh, and uh, what did I, you know, I wrote like an encryption thing. 
uh, to keep all the other kids from getting to my source code and screwing <laughs> it up. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it was very high school, but uh, but it all blurred together. To, and I would write games too. I did like a little multiplayer dungeon thing, but it all writing anything on the computer was the game to sure, me. You know, sure. that that was, the, the fun was writing the thing and making something. And and I did games because I perceived there to be you know. Other kids would think I was cool if I did them. You know, right. Teachers would think I was cool if I made like the, make an email thing or, or right. whatever. So you would kids say, would think I was cool if I made a game. So you would say at that level you are you're almost much more into programming. Yeah, than I would. I was game, to games themselves. The, the core passion at that point was I had no idea what I wanted to do. My ambition when I was thirteen, I declared this to my mother. I said that I am going to go to MIT and I'm going to make compilers. That is what I wanted, and I, I still thought I wanted to make compilers all the way through when I got to college, and and I wanted to go to MIT all the way until I didn't get into MIT. Right, <laughs> and so that uh, uh, that uh, wow, wanted yeah, to make I, compilers. I remember I wanted, my compilers right. class. That's an intense because so, somehow that was like important shit. I, well, that's, I, I that's some of the hardest. Do... That's some of the hardest work there is. Yeah, sure. it, well, so I perceived it certainly at the time. You know, certainly in the eighties, that was like high-level computer science, so if you wanted to be somebody, you ought to go do that. Right. So that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I certainly wasn't given any encouragement in, you know, by teachers in terms of, the, like, making games. Sure. Would be a, and it never even occurred to me. It did not occur to me that you could make a living making games right. until so it was very I was su- in graduate school. Yes. So you would have been very surprised to find out how your life turned out. Oh, yeah, totally, from, totally. From I, I mean, you know, one can look back on, you know, people that knew me back then now claim they're totally not surprised. Sure. Because I was totally into, oh, I certainly, right. among the things that I did a whole lot of in high school was make games on computers. So, sure. it, you know, but they're probably forgetting all the other stuff I made on So computers. now we, we had a, you know, we were talking just a little bit about uh, war games when we started yep. here. Were you doing that at the oh, same I time? Oh, I was, yes. So I, because I could see other people like making Avalon that Hill games. Right. And, uh, yeah. So I had, uh, when I was 11 years old, my uncle came to town. Um, and he, he was a commercial artist. Uh, and he, he's, like, he's right between my mother and I in age. So he's uh-huh. very, you know, when I was 11, he was in his early 20s. And, uh, you know, he'd just gone out of art school. And somehow he had been in New York, and he'd gone to this place called SPI, and he'd mm-hmm. picked up some game, and he brought it back to our house. Randomly? He was like, was he, was he into war games? Or? Well, he had never been before. Uh-huh. He picked one up, and he brought it back, a game called Fold a Gap. It was okay. about, like, a Soviet Warsaw Pact invasion of, yep. you know, Cold War game. And he didn't have anybody to play it with, so he kind of humored his 11-year-old nephew with, you know, I, I think I got to be, you know, the NATO forces as they got utterly smashed flat by right. a million Russians and Russian whatevers. Uh, and then I think I got to be the the, the the foolish Russians blundering forward and the, the million pinpricks from there. So I, I was just his punching bag as either side. for But I was utterly fascinated with these war games. And then he apparently was as well because he became an artist for Avalon Hill. And so he drew the squad leaderboards. If you remember the squad leader, Charlie Kibler is my uncle. He (laughs) painted most of the squad leaderboards and a whole bunch of other games as well. He drew the advanced third Reich map and all these. That one, the original one, he got there before his time. uh, uh, Lots of the the civilization, the the trade cards in that civilization game 
he drew he all drew those things. So yeah, wild. yeah, yeah. So he, wow, he so was wild. one of their main artists for you know over a decade. And so I got to take advantage of his employee discount because I could get any Avalon Hill game I wanted for five bucks. Wow. So I had a lot, I played a lot of those Hex War games when I was uh, in all of those ages. Loved that. I spent hours, so many games of Third Reich. We used to play Third Reich for money, you know. Wow. <laughs> a, a decisive Axis victory was four bucks. And <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Marginal victory was one dollar. <laughs> So I didn't realize you were so connected to that world then. It, well, it, it, it was a strange little side thing. Sure. Uh, I didn't think of it as connected yeah, at all. Yeah, it was right. just this other thing I love to do, and I'm lucky enough to have yeah. an uncle that... that well, war games from that period are interesting because, I mean, you're, you know, you're basically turning your own brain into a computer to pull yep. it off, right? Yep. I mean, the, the, the rule systems are that complex, and they were basically way ahead of what you could do with a computer game at the time. Yep. So, you know, if you're interested in games as a player and you got, you know, you saw, you know, you could easily see the limitations, especially for strategy games, mm -hmm. right? Like, there are arcade games from that period that hold up for mm -hmm. sure, right? I mean, Pac-Man is still a great game, right? Et cetera, yep. et cetera. But, you know, if you were serious about strategy games, your best option was a paper-based war game. Right. right. Yeah, 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 totally. And and the, it had these funny ramifications later in life because later on when I, you know, got my first job at Microprose and was being, you know, which I thought of as a company that does 3D flight simulators. That like in my head that was what Microprose did. So I thought I was going to do 3D flight simulators and um I went there and they were, you know, they were introducing me around on my first day or my right. second day or whatever. And they introduced me to some guy named Sid Meier who I'd never heard of. And wow, really? Totally, yeah, it just totally, that one just went right over my head. Was that because I, you weren't playing those those well, games in general, or you just hadn't happened? Well, I, I, the games I had played by Microprose were like the flight simulators, and I wasn't aware of any particular person that had right. done them. It was just, oh, this is a company, it makes them, I'll go work for the company, it didn't, the whole idea of, you know, the great auteur, yeah. <laughs> just, and I'd never heard of, pi I had never run into pirates or railroad tycoon. He hadn't done Civilization yet. Yeah. He was starting on it, like, during my first year there, or he did start on it during the first year there. Um, so anyway, I, but I do remember being introduced to him, because uh -huh. yeah, there, there was this strange social vibe, like, you know, I'm missing some important social cue here, you know, that just kind of clued my brain in to remember this moment, but I remember what he told me was, he just, oh, well, have fun, you know, he said, have fun, and, and for, you know, like, a decade later, you know, and on, that's how I've always... That that has been my advice to all new guys sure. who've worked for my companies. You know, when I don't when I don't know anything else, that's oh, you know, it's, it's it's have fun, you know, have a good time. So uh, that's my I have stolen that advice <laughs> from Sid. Um, but the, but the other thing I was going to say is that when I, what they were also introducing me around, then they come to the door. And I was like, wow, it can't be the same Bruce Shelley. I mean, Bruce Shelley. <laughs> I used to remit. I used to sure. read. The yeah, general yeah, yeah. articles about him and sure. the stuff he was yeah, doing, into, and I know about games. his life and times, and so I was so excited to run into Bruce Shelley, you know, who of course turned out to know my uncle and all this. So, so anyway, you know, my personal, you know, surprising hero moment on my first day at Microsoft was actually getting introduced to Bruce Shelley, wow. um, and that was all because of all that other weird. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Because of the wargaming life, right? You know. Well, yeah, Microprose, Microprose was for a video game company was pretty 
somewhat connected to that. Well, and being in the same world. town, and, sure. You know, it was all um, convenient. But that wasn't that. But your connection with them was that a part of you getting your first job, or it was just a total coincidence? No, no, total coincidence. Had no idea until I walked past his office that, right. that there was anybody from. No, I, I was. So at the time, my first day at Microprose occurred, which was May of 1991. Right. Um, I had probably only been aware for about six months from that time that there was such a thing as making a living in video sure. games. Because right. I had finished... It was in graduate school, hating graduate school, and I remember I was playing Ultima Six, and I was playing um, Populous, the very first Populous. Yep. But I think it was at the end of Ultima Six, like I, I beat the game, and these credits started to roll. Sure. It's like, huh, names, interest, oh, programming by, interesting, programming, and, and right. other stuff, but programming, you know, I know how to program, <laughs> I have done a lot of that, yeah, you right. know, I, I still, I, I've been paid to program, and, but all these names, I'm thinking, look at all these names, people must, this must be their job, you know, you must be able to make a living doing this, and, and that was what, so I was like, okay, I can do this, and I went to the university bookstore, um, I was at Berkeley, and bought the Microsoft C compiler, 6.0, which I think was about 400 bucks. That was a lot of money for a graduate student who I think I was getting 900 bucks a month of, of fellowship. You know, I was living on 900 bucks a month. I spent 400 of it on for that month. You can imagine how well I ate uh, on uh, a Microsoft C compiler. And I bought like two Peter Norton secret guides to DOS right. and took them back and spent the next month making... I said, okay, Ultima 6 and Populous, looked at the graphics, oh, I can make graphics like that. You know, right. my, my art, I knew my art level was not up to that level of art, even in the you know, 320 by 200, right. you know, uh, 256 color days. But I could make something that animated and did sure. stuff and made music, and, and so I made one now, of those and sent it in. That's how I got my job. To, to, to clarify sort of the timeline here, have you, since you, you said you, you know, went to get the C compiler, had you sort of dropped out of programming for a while? Well, I had, so, um, when I had gone to college, I had, um... Because you were doing a lot through high school. I started thinking, I'm going to be a computer science major and stuff. And I rapidly got there, and I was being, very quickly, I was being paid, um, you know, what I thought was a nice high rate, to tutor people through classes that were two semesters higher than what I was allowed to take because of, you know, <laughs> prerequisite requirements. So the wow. problem is I already knew too much. Just, so, and, and this is a different age. Yeah. In that age, you know, professors in university didn't actually know very much about programming. And right. what they would know, they would know, you know, they would be theoretical languages like Pascal or worse one, you know, even early weird Lisp, weird, non-practical languages for doing anything in. And I had already had two summer jobs at a company called Integraph that mm-hmm. made computer graphics. I think they're still around. Uh, and, you know, doing actual computer programming in, um, you know, like one year I did C, other years I, there was Fortran. I mean, yep. you know, in real, in working languages. I mean, there's lots of flaws in Fortran and C, but they were practical languages that, that people made, you know, professionally useful pieces of software. and So I was already doing that, and so you get with people that were academics, and they just didn't, they really didn't often have a clue. I'm sure if I'd gotten into MIT, I might have been happy there. You know, there there right. were places where you could do these things. But anyway, um, yeah, by the time I you, was like a sophomore, I decided, yeah, screw this computer stuff. Yeah. So I kept doing summer jobs in computers. But this, like, is, this is Berkeley, right? 
Well, that was graduate school. Oh, oh, where were you here? So I had, I foolishly stayed at the University of Alabama. I got into Carnegie Mellon, but I like freaked out and didn't go. You know, that would have probably been fantastic. Different, well, I'd probably be making compilers today. It's funny to think And a hell of a lot less money. Probably a lot less interesting life. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it's funny uh, how life can I, go. I'd probably be really burned out of making yeah. compilers by now. But okay. Uh, so anyway, I so what I decided was, and this is you know, I mean, this is class. I mean, a whole it takes a whole series of you know bad decisions by a nineteen year old, by a twenty year old, by a twenty year to manage to follow my career path in the game. Lots of bad, just bad decision after right. bad decision. Well, it's funny because you started. Perfectly. Right, right. No, you know, I, well, <laughs> you know, you've heard of like the Malcolm Gladwell, get your ten thousand yeah, hours in. Yeah. Well, I thought, I, you know, when I when that, I, you know, that was a totally unknown theory, obviously back then. But you know, when I heard about that, I was thinking back. Well, you know, did I do that? And I realized I actually probably had ten thousand hours in both computer programming and playing. Um, Games, sure. you know. Yeah. So I, you know, I had ten thousand hours in each by the time I was, you know, got to college. Frankly, because uh, that's basically all I did with my my early life. So anyway, I got my early hours in, but then in college was a total, you know, crazy time of bad decisions. And uh, one of the decisions was, okay, this is stupid being paid. To, I don't want to even do computer science. I'm going to go learn something interesting. So I went and I got myself. A history and philosophy degree. Uh, so I, I transferred to a liberal arts school. Right. So I went to Sewanee, oh, okay. which is a liberal arts, small liberal. I would fan, right. learned a lot about history and philosophy. So I have a degree in history and philosophy. That was my yeah. you know, actually the only degree I ever got because I didn't finish graduate school. Uh, and which well, in the sounds... end turned out to be good for me. <laughs> Again, like I said, it takes a lot of bad decisions to become a game designer properly, sure. and and so I did that. Uh, and at the time I was doing that though. Um, you know, while all my other liberal arts, you know, uh, fellow students were, you know, basically really poor, uh, I would go home in the summer and I would go work for these Defense Department contractors <laughs> using, because I was the one that could translate Fortran programs that like 50-year-old engineers that didn't really understand deeply modern computing, right. I could go put that into a silicon graphic $70,000 graphics machine and make it look really cool for the general when they made their demo. Right. And so the, the funny thing there was I didn't have a security clearance. And so there'd be this guy making, you know, they, they put a junior engineer or, or physicist or whatever they had, be one of their guys that was probably being paid like $60,000 a year, you know, in 1985. Um, and what he would do is he would sit there all day while I programmed because he had to be in the room because he had a security clearance while I programmed the thing. <laughs> so I, I just to watch you, you know, for, for seven. You know, I would they'd pay me seven dollars an hour oh, uh, to program and him sixty thousand dollars a year to sit while I programmed, and that was a thing. But I remember there were, there would be these algorithms for like okay, um, the two that I really remember there was one where. Some guy had a Fortran program, and it generated data, and it was like the heat created on a, an aerial nuclear blast, you know, at, at various times. And it, was, uh -huh. it looked like this wall of numbers right. in, a, in a file, and the Fortran program made it. And he said, okay, Brian, can you do anything like this to make it cool? And so I had just seen the movie Predator, you know, like the very uh -huh. first one. And I don't know if you remember the very first one, but, but like whenever you were like seeing the creature's perspective, it was in like infrared cam and, you know, like yellow and red and green and 
depending on the heat level. So I just like took these blocks of data and turned them in on this silicon grass machine. Just made a little program in C that just put it up, you know, pixelated that, and then ran it as an animation, you know, in real time, and it looked awesome. And so I'd come around the corner, and there would be like nine highly paid physicists and engineers all like <laughs> craning their necks to like look at this thing, and I'd written the program. So uh, this was, I was a bit in the middle of college, and they immediately offered me $45,000 a year salary to just quit college and come work for that company. Right, right. Um, doing that, which fortunately, that is one bad decision I did not make. <laughs> and the other one I remember is there was something where Soviet missiles would come over the North Pole, and they had some algorithm that they were developing that decided which missiles to shoot with this satellite and which missiles to shoot with that satellite. You know, this was back in Reagan Star Wars times. And um, and so, like, my job was, like, there was this 100,000-point uh, National Geographic database of the borders of the Earth, you know, the national borders and continental borders of the Earth, and um, had that thing running on the silicon graphics and then projecting in 3D these missiles coming over and then color-coding them into these tubes they called them so like the red one the green one and, and so that you could see that they were getting color coded and I remember making that I made a, a fairly war games like display and then like they want oh no like get in there closer and make it more th so it was like the, the missiles were literally coming at your face and right. and that was what they thought was really cool and then they had to show it to the general mm -hmm. um, uh, that this was some general for the SDI program, and but I couldn't be in the room mm -hmm. because I wasn't security cleared. Um, but then the general had some question about this thing. Right. Uh, you know, could you do this or whatever? And and they didn't have the sense to just say yes, of course you could do that because uh, that's the right answer, right? Uh, and so they had to have the general ask some guy, and the guy had to ask some guy that was standing in the doorway, and then I would be out in the hall. You know, I'm you know. 19-year-old kid or whatever, and I would tell the guy, and the guy would tell the general, and then he might ask some other question. And so it was, that was my, uh, that's what I did in the summertime. And that's how I kept in touch with computers. So what, what did you, what did you think you were doing at this point? You're going to a liberal arts college. Yep. You're doing a very advanced programming work right. for defense I department. I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely I mean, no idea. But I, you I, must have known that something was, I mean, you must have stood out, obviously, at liberal arts school, for example. I probably stood out a little bit, but I didn't. I didn't play up the computer stuff at yeah. liberal arts school. I mean, I was the guy that had a computer. Sure. You know? I mean, some of them had, and I had a PC. They all had Mac. Anybody yeah. had one had a Mac. And I guess maybe what I'm getting at is that, uh, and this was probably a problem for a lot of people in the era, mm -hmm. in the, this era. You pr there were probably very few people you knew who were in your shoes. Oh, yeah, no mentors whatsoever. So you, you Zero. Absolutely on, on my own as far as... So, you know, I could have had mentoring if I wanted to be a, you know, Defense Department physicist person or if I'd wanted to be... Uh, you know, if I'd wanted to make... If I'd stayed with the compiler's right. track, I'd probably have eventually found a mentor. I certainly didn't have one at the time. But no, it was completely... Uh, it was a completely... Yeah. And you would say you were you were just lucky enough that you were not in a place where you could sort of follow that track, right? In, in a way, in a way, like you know, you know, some of the things that, you know, that, that might have, you know, getting into MIT might have been the worst thing that ever happened to yeah, me yeah. if I had gotten in. Well, what, and and why didn't you take a job like with the Defense Department? I just had so you know, my parents had programmed me for uh, they had successfully programmed me to think that. 
that there is no reasonable path in life that does not involve finishing college. I mean, I was just operating on parental program. You know, there was one one of the very few things I did that where I actually was, you know, didn't defy, you know, didn't go out on a limb and just yeah. defy that. I mean, certainly the money was tempting, but but to me it was just laughable. The idea of quitting college was just laughable. You know, of what do you think I'm stupid? You know, I'm not going to quit college to, you know, take. A lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that was a lot of money in 1985. Yeah, sure, just, sure. just to be clear, um, you know, I think that was actually pretty reasonable amount of money now. Yeah, that was the initial <laughs> offer that Fraxis made to me 15 years later, forty-five thousand dollars. Right, right. So. Well, I think my first salary at Microprose was thirty thousand dollars. So you know, I, I basically I went to college so, yeah, to that, be able to take you know uh, two thirds the salary that I've been offered. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But yeah. boy, did I want to work at Microprose. So right. Yeah. Exactly. Know, that was that. You know, once I figured out that there was this career, and it was called making video games, you know, or computer games, as we called them then, and you could do it for a living, and it was a career. That was all I wanted to do, and I didn't care how much money I made. Right. Like, I would have taken twenty thousand dollars. You know, I would have probably taken free. You know, if, if someone had been attempting to exploit me, they would have very successfully been able to exploit me. I, I got lucky on, you know, I my first, um, my hiring manager at Microprose was a very, because I think he asked me how much money I wanted to make, and I was like, oh, I don't know, 24, 25,000 cent would be great. Uh, I mean, remember, I've been living on $900 a month, yeah. so um, I just named some number that sounded like I could live on it, and it's like, oh, Brian, we can do better than that. I mean, you can imagine a... <laughs> In the video game industry, some guy, you know, deciding, oh, you're not asking enough for salary, I'm going to pay you more. I mean, that. Right. so I certainly owe Tony Parks for <laughs> for not maybe not passing that on, that that particular ask on, or whatever happened. But yeah, it started 30000 and now I was like, oh, man, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, this is all the money I'll ever need to make for the rest of my life, and that was all I wanted to do for the rest of my life was <clears throat> make those games. Right, right. That's interesting. So yeah, it's um, so I I also have a history degree. That was that was my major in college, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting <laughs> because for me, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't have been interested in purely doing computer science. I would have mm-hmm. found it too boring. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, it sounds like the problem was just your situation you were at. It was not challenging enough. The academics for computer science was too boring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing computers was completely interesting to me. Anything, making email, making a whatever, you know, I would have, you know, if the internet had existed, I would have loved being a back-end server guy. I'd probably, you know, today, me in high school today would probably want to be a back-end server whiz or something like that. You know, whatever's happening. Or I'd want to go work at Facebook, something like that. Sure. Whatever the, the hot, crazy thing was but but yeah no it's 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 uh it's just funny so you get a history degree and then you go make a civ game <laughs> you don't think you'd be making games you know if you were 13 14 years old nowadays oh i'd probably make games too but i mean if I, and maybe maybe these days i would think oh i want to make them for a living because that's a much you know now that sure. there's degrees in it you mm-hmm. know it's like a they they counsel people into this path yeah. you know in the 80s if anything they counseled you out of that right. path right that, that you are out of your mind yeah. uh, i mean now they would know what to do with someone like you right right yes <laughs> exactly that, that's true but but the thing is it never occurred to me in those days that i would even it wasn't that i wanted to and people were pushing me away from it yeah. um it was that I didn't even know that that was what I wanted to do. So I can imagine a, a certain version of the early me just wanting to be at the forefront of whatever the technology was. And yeah, just think yeah. that's what I wanted to do. You know. 
So you got your so you got your degree, and then you went to then that's when you went I got to my got my bachelor's degree. Went off to do a PhD in philosophy at Berkeley. Wow. So uh, what was involved with that decision? Because at that point, well, I thought I was going to teach. Yeah, I still hadn't. I still hadn't made the connection. I mean, I like I said, I mean, this time a weird, not necessarily smart decision. So yeah, if I if I'd finished that degree, hey, I'd probably be getting my very first, you know, forty five thousand dollar job about now at age forty five or figure <laughs> six. <laughs> you know, right. philosophy. There's a there's a um, you know being a philosophy professor. There's a high paying profession for you. Right. <laughs> Easy to get the jobs too. I hear. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Not. Yeah, you didn't think about that because you could have easily found a job as a programmer. Oh, I was being offered jobs as programmers. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I did, uh, but I had just said, nah, this wasn't, I hadn't found the right thing, the thing that I was really hungry for um, and until, until I found out you could make games for later. Like, once I was at Microprose, it was done. Sure. That was, then I was on the course I knew I wanted to be on and wished I'd always wanted to be on it. And, you know, it was just, everything clicked into place. All these different, you know, getting a history degree clicked into place yeah. with all the computer programming I'd done and the games I'd made and well, all. What was stuff. it? What was it about the philosophy, and, you know, a PhD in philosophy? Because that's that's a pretty big commitment to jump into. I mean, I, I yeah. stayed. Well, I had thought I wanted to get a PhD in history, and then I decided, ah, philosophy. I, you know, then I, it was just the, it was the thing where I had inspiring professors. You know, I sure. just. That's all. I, and then I, I just thought, well, I want, maybe I want to teach. And, and so what do I want to do? I teach at university. So therefore, I need a PhD. So what should I get a PhD in? Well, the coolest professors I've known have been in blank. So I'll do that. Um, now, the philosophy degree, I mean, the thing that that gave to me more than anything was the ability to write and argue sure. and all of that stuff. You know, they teach you to kind of think rigorously. And, and that has been you know, a huge help. A very, very, And the history degree. You know, they teach you a lot of those things in addition to also teaching you some history. Um, but, you know, I mean, be able to come up with, like, colonization probably had a lot to do with having a history degree, right? Because that was my, um, um, here's my one cool period of history. Let's say, hey, hey, Sid, could we make a game about this? Right. Um, uh, yes. Uh, so that was, you know, that was, uh, so those degrees, you know, did come back in and, and play, and you know, the, maybe the one place where actual philosophy ever came into place was Al- Alpha Centauri, sure, but, right. uh, um, you know, doesn't come up very often in my video game career, but but certainly the ability to write and communicate and, and think rigorously has certainly helped a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't, you know, coming from someone who sort of is perhaps, I mean, I, if you're a natural programmer, mm-hmm. writing might be sort of the second language. You know, I don't know if that, right. that's how Well, it was I was lucky in that way that I got trained to do both things. Yeah. You know, that I was I was good at math and I was good at English and history. Um, and I would have probably, you know, I grew up in a very technology-oriented town and everybody that I knew that was successful was doing technology. You know, they were either at NASA or they were at Defense Department, you know, because this was Huntsville, Alabama, which was, you know, Rocket City, USA, right. and they, they made the... Army Missile Command there, among other things. But um, so everybody that I was around was in technology. So I thought, well, I, I want to do technology. So I would have probably, you know, as a very young person, kind of more looked down on the more liberal artsy kind of thing. I thought I want to go to technology school, do technology, and make something important like a compiler. Right. But um, 
But meanwhile, you know, when I got to the point where I just want to tell you something I'm interested in, well, I was really interested in history. Right? History was cool. Sure. And, you know, I hadn't learned about philosophy yet, but when I found that, I was cool too. It was interesting. Let's, let's go argue about the meaning of life a lot, and and that sort of stuff um, seemed yeah. important in in its own way. Um, so, so what know. so what happened then? It's because you obviously didn't finish your, your degree. Yeah, so. I um, I got to graduate school, and I found that I actually hated graduate school. I did, and <laughs> that, that, that what well, so the thing about academia is that uh, it's really more about quote-unquote research than it is about teaching. Right. I, I went, I was thinking, okay, I want to teach, so I want to do this, and they didn't want to teach me anything about teaching or right. or whatever. It was all about doing independent original research, and you can imagine, okay, so philosophy. I'm not even sure think, what that think means about what, yeah, 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 exactly. Think about what that might mean. <laughs> That's pretty and, esoteric. And you can probably quickly figure out, well, it's not only esoteric, but it's almost kind of um, deconstructed to nothingness. Uh, and, right. and, and so anyway, it, it wasn't for me. I'm sure it's great for many people. Um, and, you know, and some very inspiring professors that I had that, that inspired me, you know, had gone that way and done well in it, but, but it wasn't for me. And so I had this, like, i got to find something to do. You know, I was obviously, I was not a graduate student fellow. You know, I already was past per, the point of parental support because I was in graduate school. And I had this fellowship that as soon as I wanted to stop going to class, they were going to stop paying me even the $900 a month. So I was like, I better figure out some way to get by. Uh, and I used to know something about those computers, and that all kind of clicked into place. And uh, I basically, you know, when I, the day I bought the compiler, I basically stopped going to class ever again <laughs> and started writing that thing. I was just right, the, was the moral certainty that if I, you know, if, if you build it, they will come. You know, if I make this game demo, then I will then have a job making. You right. know, that, no fear whatsoever. There's something about being. You know, being 22, that right. is nothing um, to lose. It was freeing in a yeah. way that it, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so able this to make take, a decision like that. This didn't take long. This was your first year of graduate school. Yeah, it was the first year. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. You know, I probably realized I wanted to do that toward the end of the first semester, yeah. and and fairly early in the second semester, didn't go to class, and before the second semester ended, I was a full time employee at Microprose. So wow. that was yeah. how fast it. So it what happened. did you? What did you make? Well, it was a little, um, it was a little world with a map, um, and little wizards and club men wandered around. Or on was, it was populous very? Like, I mean, you know, populous, populous and Ultima Six were both sure. inspirations okay. for the grad. You know, and I did, I did color cycling and all this stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I would get, I would go down these rabbit holes of these little side. I even like got the, you know, the ad lib card. Kit, so I could compose music for. I I was just wow. trying to do do everything to show I could just do anything, and I had no conception of what well, what do you have to do to have a career in this. I figured, well, maybe you have to do all of it. So I tried to do all of it, and and you know, I I was very upfront in my cover letter. Well, you know, I'm not really an expert on the art, but anyway, it was a thing you could boot up, and you could see guys moving around with graphics. The at least the delivery of the graphics of which was you know, of a par with what was going, you know, the frame rate and the animation and all that was as good as what they had. It wasn't professionally done art, but it was, um, but I'd spent actually you know, a ridiculous number of hours making my programmer art because I wanted it to not oh look God. completely yeah. crappy. And, and, and it had music that I had composed and it played the music and it did the whole thing. And 
it wasn't actually a game because it didn't have a lot of interactivity. It was more like the demo, but then you could see the yeah. parts of it. And, and yeah, it was not clear to ask, I had right? written every line. You know, I when they I had written every line of it uh-huh. and done yeah. all the art and done all the music. Um, yeah. And it was something I could have turned it into a game with some more time. Sure. I didn't know anything. That was the one thing I didn't know anything about was games. I had no idea how to begin designing a yeah. game. Yeah, um, I was going to ask. Like, were you thinking at all in game design terms? At no, point? not at all. I, I was kind of trying to clone a game design experience, you right. know, and just to show that I could. But I wasn't thinking that I wanted to be a game designer. I, I was thinking I wanted to, you know, be a game engineer. Right. And, and that's what I applied. And that was the first position I had was a, was programmer, computer programmer was my title. So where did you apply? Uh, okay, so I wanted to be as far away from California as I could possibly get. <laughs> wow, you really didn't like California. Uh, didn't like no, I it, it, at every level. I didn't like California. I didn't like the Bay Area. I didn't like the University of California Berkeley. I did not like the philosophy department. Said, <laughs> and, and, oh, and as you as you zoomed in, the the um, the bit. loathing grew. You know, so so you know the philosophy department at UC Berkeley was was the you know the the deer of, of oh, my hatred thing. and loathing, but I, I wanted to get as far physically. How far can I physically get away? It was a little challenge. Can I, I want to get a job and see how far I can. Especially physically if you're looking to work in video games. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, since my imagination was constrained to the continent of the United States, you can see I did pretty well. You know, by right. by the game I had designed for myself, I, I had uh, I had excelled. But I sent one, so my hero at the time, my, my video game hero, in, in, you know, in these six months I realized sure. there was a profession. I had figured out that there was this guy named Richard Garriott, and he sure. had made Ultima. Um, is that a Ultima cloth map back there or something else? <laughs> uh, uh, it reminds me. That's it, it, an actual 15th century map. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, see, there you go. But uh, um, I had figured out I wanted to work for Lord British, basically. Okay. And so I applied to Origin. Um, and I applied to Microprose because I thought their flight simulators were cool, and sure. because I thought that, hey, I've been doing this 3D work, so maybe I'm relevant to that. And then I applied, you know, kind of broke the rule, and I applied to Sierra Online, even though it was in California, sure. because They're, I knew some of their games, yeah. and I thought that was, you know, that was cool stuff. And you literally just sent in a disc? I sent in the disc, a cover letter, and a resume. Yeah. Yep. Um, and... About a week later, I got a call from Microprose, and they said, "Hey, we got your thing. Can you fly out?" Yeah. And, and the answer was, "Of course, yes." And so then, you know, it took about a week for them to arrange a flight. I flew out there. You know, I probably flew out there in March of '91. Mm-hmm. Did the interview, uh, got the job, and uh, then I had to arrange to get all my crap back from California. Um, I flew a high school friend of mine out, so they gave me like one month salary to for my moving expenses, but everything I owned in the whole world fit in the back of my pickup truck, <laughs> so it was just, I needed to drive there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whatever one twelfth of $30,000 is, they gave me, and so what I, I flew my, um, my high school friend Paul Stefanok out to oh. drive with me, and we oh, drove wow. across the com- country, and I dropped him off back in Alabama, and, uh, came on up here, and, you know, my first day might have been May the 10th or something like that in 91, and so I started working, and so somewhere around the 1st of June, so I'm already working here, living in an apartment here in Maryland, I get a call at night at my apartment, and it's Richard Garriott, and so he's somehow, it's he's him. gotten a re- 
What's that? It's actually him. It's actually him. Oh, it, oh, hi, God. this is Richard Garriott. <laughs> is this Brian Reynolds? Because this is Richard Garriott. Uh-huh. And wow. uh, so I guess he'd gotten around to or somebody had looked at Showed my disc it, or yeah. whatever and they decided, oh, let's hire the interview this guy or whatever. Um, and he was calling to put the... And I don't think I'd said anything about, you know, Richard Gary as my personal hero or anything. Right. Uh, but he was calling and he had somehow called my mom and... Yeah, I was and, wondering how well, he even I, got I think, your number. I think I had my parents' address sure. on the resume at the time and so he called my mom and got my number so he called me up and he's like hey why don't you come work with me in Austin on you know the next Ultima game and I was like oh crap <laughs> I might have used a stronger word than that because <laughs> uh, you know this is like you know sure. my game Richard design Garriott. you know I'd never heard of Sid Meier but boy had I heard of Richard Garriott yeah. and uh, and so I was like all like oh man moral problems and, and but you know again I, I did have a I had a strong moral compass at the time that told me no it, it is not right to quit the job that I just got yeah. you know they you know they I you know I signed up for this and I'm doing this and and now they need me and whatever so I had to tell Richard Garriott no and and that was just you know it was a really hard early decision I mean I think that it was crazy. the right one in a whole lot of ways Yeah I was going to say from a very high level looking at you and the type of things you're interested in Microprose Microprose does seem like the perfect turned, place I think my talents were better used at Microprose right. I think Microprose was actually a much more um employee kind environment than it turned out origin was at the time like once right. i learned the ropes of the industry i was like oh yeah hmm people burn out at origin you know whereas they didn't burn out at, at microprose and, and then i got my mentorship with sid who was still very actively making games and wasn't going off to antarctica and you know sure. <laughs> and whatever you know he wasn't so busy you know enjoying the fruits of his success right. that he that he didn't want to um teach Teach yeah. the new class how to how to make the game, and so anyway, I I was very fortunate to end up where I was. But boy, was that a you know a heartbreaking moment. Yeah. And, and you, I assume you've probably met Richard. Oh, over I have. The years. So, have so, you guys remin- yeah, does he yeah, have any memory have, of so that? So literally five years later, like uh-huh. exactly five years later. So my, my I, I was I was at Microprose for exactly five years, okay. and so five years later, I was at that point the. Um, you know, we had published Civ 2, and it was a huge success, and we were all leaving Micropose and starting Firaxis. And, you know, and that was mostly on the strength of Sid's, sure. you know, name and career. Um, but, you know, one of my roles in, in founding the company was to be a guy that could also go make games. You know, that Sid didn't have to just hold my Do hand to make right. a game. So it was like, oh, we can double the amount of games we can make by having Brian be a partner. So that was how I got in. Um, and so... Um, Sid's influence was able to produce a publisher pitch process unlike any that I have ever seen henceforth in my career, which right. is that the publishers flew out to Hunt Valley, Maryland sure. to pitch us. And so I can remember, um, you know, Bobby Kodak personally came out from Activision. Right. So the CEO of Activision flew out. You know, not just even anybody from Activision flying out, you know, would be one thing, but but Bobby Kodak flew out to pitch us on why we should go with Activision, and similarly uh, EA slash Origin, you know, rolled out the big, you know, so they sent um, 
well, they sent Richard Garriott and uh, you know, and some other guys that were that I had certainly heard of that were more businessy or whatever. But um, but anyway, Richard Garriott was out there, and 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 I said, uh, I have a funny story, Richard. You know, and he totally didn't remember <laughs> sure, that, but he sure. totally remember he totally realized it was completely plausible, and and uh, so that was. Uh, that was, and so we reminisced about what it was like to be a really young guy wanting to get in the industry. Because you know he remembered being a really young guy wanting to get in the industry too, uh, in his own in his own weird way. But yeah, no, I, I uh, had a, it was a fantastic reminiscence. And it's funny to think it was only five years later that uh, sure that's just that, that all of that, 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 yeah. that you know it was this totally different uh, situation. And you know, and uh, he didn't remember the thing, but at that point he had certainly heard of me, and so that was kind of cool that sure. uh, I yeah. had. You know, not quite reached peer level with him, but I had re- at least reached you know, let's do the table and, and do business together, and that was awesome. You know, that was a, uh, and that you know, I'd say, well, Microprose did that for me. You know, yeah, I sure. probably wouldn't have had that experience if I had uh, gone somewhere else or or done something like that. But uh, yeah. yeah, well, I definitely feel similar about joining Fraxis being like the, the perfect place, you know, for for me to start my career. And if I had been at almost any other studio. I, you know, who knows what would have happened? Right. Like I, I could easily right. imagine being sort of still doing the typical game development stuff, or mm-hmm. maybe even have gotten tired of the industry. I, it was usually, a good environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know what I usually I emphasize whenever you know get a lot of questions often about you know getting into the industry mm-hmm. and you know, what, you know what courses should I take? Should I go to game school? What I should I do? And you know, often what I say it's so most important is making sure you find the right company to work at mm-hmm. um, yeah. because yeah. like having a passion for the a passion and an uh, aptitude for the specific games they make makes such a huge difference. Yeah. And it's really sad when you think about, um, you know, I think about all the folks that were in the industry, you know, you know, in my class, you know, in the class of 91 sure. or whatever. And there's really relatively few sure. people still in the industry. Yeah. You know, there's been so many casualties, uh, in in various ways and the business and burns them out it or, burns them out and and a lot of them you know had done fine at microprose but then you know when microprose contracted and yeah. you know we all either you know we if we didn't get laid off it was because we had voted with our feet before you know yeah. we saw it coming sure. and, and got out or whatever um and then they went off to other places and yeah. rapidly got burned out. And or so they can't make sad. a technological leap, for example. Oh, well, there, like there's, there's, so many, things, there's so many different ways. Know, there, you there's can get there's out. so many ways yeah. to yes to come a cropper in the game industry. <laughs> I mean, which I, and honestly, you know, when people tell me these days, when young people tell me, I want, you know, hey, maybe I want to, maybe I want to be a game designer or a game whatever. You know, can you tell me, Mr. Brian, what you know what I need to do? And so the first thing, you know, the, the main thing I say is, okay, well, if if you think it's maybe, right. then go find something else yeah. to do, you know, because yeah. it is so competitive. You know, there's so many people that want to do it and that do it with all their heart and passion and focus. Uh, and even that doesn't guarantee you'll be successful. But the point is, if you don't have that level of passion, you know, if it's not your calling, it needs to yeah. be a calling. And so if it's not a calling for you, then that's probably not the field for you because there's other places. You know, if you want to make money, there's other places a lot easier to make money. If yeah. you want to work with computers, there's a lot of other paths of a lot less resistance to work with computers and and so on. Um, yeah. So yeah, to be a game developer, especially a game designer, you have to. You can't. Nothing can stop you. Right. <laughs> like you can't. You couldn't even force yourself to stop. Right. right. Like right. it has right. to be like that important yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to get in the industry. You know. I mean, once you've 
once you've broken in then and and become established you know then it's different you know it, it's uh it, you know once you can um you know find someone to fund your games without um starving to death you right. know in the process you know then that, that's a different world uh, but, uh, you know, so it's not like that situation has to last eternally in a career. You know, it can become a stable, um, reasonable number of hours, work-life balance kind of career. Right. But it, but it probably shouldn't start that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's my thought. All right. So you, you joined Microprose. And yes. certainly probably the, the first game people will know of you for would be Civ Two, but that's not what right. you started with. Not what, so I started with animated graphic adventures. So I got there, you know, thinking I was going to be doing 3D flight simulators. Right. And it turned out, I, I, apparently I had been interviewing for a slot in 3D flight simulators, but two of us interviewed that day, and they had one slot, and... Um, but they wanted to offer both of us a job. But then they had this other project coming up, and so I, I some, you know, different things happened, and I ended up, you know, in spite of having some three D experience, being the guy on this other project. So they had decided they wanted to, you know, beat Sierra Online in its own game and make mm-hmm. games like King's Quest and stuff, you know, yeah. instead of being, you know, only the flight simulator company. So basically, graphic adventures. So I did some graphic adventures. Uh, so my very first published game. I know what uh, this is. Uh, yes, and I was, um, you know, when you hear the title, you know, you'll understand my disclaimer that, well, I was an engineer. I was not the designer, you know. But it was called Rex Nebular and the Cosmic Gender Bender. Well, you know, in a way, it's great to have a name that crazy, yeah, you know, to trot classic. out. as What was your first game, you know? So, well, it was Rex Nebular and the Cosmic Genderbender. And, and it amazes me that was a microprose game to begin with. Yeah, well, it was things. one of their side things. They did a lot of side things. They, they, they tried to diversify and mostly didn't. You could, you uh, could jump genres back then. Right? Yeah, you, well, you could. The thing is, if you looked at microprose when I got there, mm-hmm. they didn't think of strategy games as a core competency. I suppose that's true. Because civilization hadn't come along. You know, well, they Railroad, had, Railroad Tycoon, to me, would be sort of the beginning. Well, it was the and beginning, then, but it was like a one-off. Time, and I yeah. don't think it was... I mean, it was, I think, financially successful for them, but it was not on the scale of their flight. It was like, oh, well, good that it turned... You know, good that Sid's little, you know... Uh, what do you call them? Weird project... Yeah. Uh, Turn the profit, you know. Thank God we didn't lose money on some crazy Sid thing, right? And he had done pirates, and yeah. that that was another. I think that was the first of the great quote unquote yeah. Sid project. Well, we it's funny that Sid project. I guess if you think about it, didn't have a name for that. Sure. You know, there wasn't strategy game. It was called a Sid project. Right. Right. <laughs> well, it's weird to think of because to me, Sid's three landmark games are Pirates, Railroad Tycoon, and Civilization. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And each of those at the time were seen as big risks or breaks yep. for what, what totally. he had done and what the company had done and what he was known oh, for and yeah and and they they didn't i you know the the powers that be at microprose i don't think they wanted him to do civilization they were like right. oh he's wasting his time we're paying him so much money to <laughs> do this terrible you know waste of time thing and and you know and than it than it wasn't, and I, civilization one was successful on the scale of their flight simulator in fact you know, from that year onward, I don't think a flight simulator was ever as successful as Civilization. Oh, yeah. Well, know, they were they were they, they were having the other trajectory. Yeah. Well, the they time. were they, they were, but it, you, in '91 that wasn't apparent yet. Sure. You know, they, yeah. they, they, it was 
at the time civilization was in the hopper, um, mm -hmm. it was not yet clear that that was a, that the other the flight simulator was going to be a dying business model or a shrinking one or whatever it was that what they. You know, I suppose the, the lines cross, because I'm sure we'll get to the Civ Two and Top Gun story at some yeah. point here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's coming, but that's still a few years in the future. Yeah. So, uh, you know, meanwhile, the graphic adventures weren't taken off either. Yeah. Um, but after, you know, after Civ One, I think Sid felt like, well, I've done my big history of the world game. Sure. You know, he wanted to do other stuff. I mean, his he got passionate about can. Um, his music game. Can, well, I was going to say, can computers compose music? Yeah. And so CPU Bach, he, he spent a lot of time on that. Uh, well, And that one did turn out to be a crazy game, at least from a business model point of sure. view, because it did, you know, it did not succeed in a financial sense. Um, well, that game is ridiculously... And, I mean, it's already challenging enough as a game, but then right. it was on to 3 Right. I mean, well, <laughs> then he went on to Civil War game, oh, which is yeah. another kind of... Not, not as self-limiting as music composition sure. in terms of audience size. When we think of the the funnel, the audience funnel these days. Well, Civil War turned out, you know, so no European people are interested in sure. it, period. Uh, some U.S. people are. Anyway, so I, even when he was, because I, I know Gettysburg came later at Firaxis, but right. even at Micropos, he was working on a different civilization. Sure. Uh, sorry, but a different Civil War prototype. But the point is, he wasn't doing another civilization game. Yeah. And, um you know, meanwhile, the executives that come around, they're like, oh, you need to do another Civilization game. You know, <laughs> you know the thing they told him not to do, right? Yeah. Uh, need to do more. You know, pound, start pounding them out, man. You know, <laughs> this is the new business model, I'm sure. I'm sure there were conversations like that. Well, he wasn't really doing it. Uh, and meanwhile, they were about to, you know, probably lay us all off from the Graphic Adventure Group. And, uh, you know, we kind of sensed it coming. And my boss at the time told me, you know, hey, if you, you know, if you've got your work done, feel free to fool around doing whatever you want. And what I wanted to do was, you know, what I wanted to do was make a civilization game. Um, and I was just making, I mean, just, I was going to work on a prototype. Um, and, and I wasn't thinking anybody was going to fund me to do the prototype. I was just thinking, I'm just going to work on this until they lay me off, right? Because right. Uh, I, I assume, I mean, we haven't really specified, but I assume you really love the game. I know it is. Oh, no, I, I was a complete freak job about Civ 1. I, I remember I used to save off the little, when when we were internally alpha-ing it, mm -hmm. um, you know, there would be a little floppy disk that went around, and, and you'd, you know, you just go get a floppy disk, sometimes directly from Sid, you know, oh, here's my latest version, and then... And so I, you know, I would go get those and play them. And uh, so you played the the last what three or six months of the project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I can remember saving off, ar archiving off versions I liked because I knew that he might change a rule to something different <laughs> I didn't like. So I, I remember there was a, it was actually a couple of versions where the final one was the version I liked the most myself. You uh -huh. know, it was the the most Brian Reynolds approved. And so for for years I saved that Did on you my still computer. Have I do not any. I'm sure they're gone now, yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, at one point, I, I, you know, I, I had at least two versions that I, you know, thought had some charming, you know, I want to be able to go back and play that version. So I remember keeping those. Um, so I was a complete freakazoid for for Civilization sure. and playing it on, uh, you know, worked my way up to Emperor level and played that and found all the weird holes in the system. And, you know, I mean, I was I was certainly into deconstructing games. Sure. Uh, I was good at. I'd always been good at. I was always, been always good at finding the little flaws and holes in games. So anyway, did doing that stuff. Decided I wanted to make a little prototype, mm -hmm. and the coolest part of my history degree had always been the European expansion and colonization sure. of the New World. And yeah. so, basically, I made this big old map. I didn't have any of the Civ code. 
I, I just had to make you stuff. You, I used my animated graphic adventure engine. Yeah, I had written oh, really? the engine for that, so I started yeah. using that the engine for that and just right. made this thing. Huge map, of, you know, ridiculously large. You know, imagine the largest map you've ever seen in any civilization game, and then make it about six times larger. You know, and, and it was this map all the way. You know, from Greenland to Tierra del Fuego at the you know Cape Horn at the bottom of South America, right. um, and you, you could ex- literally explore. I had played Seven Seas of Gold. Yep. I didn't actually like it much when I and it, it all felt like empty forests and yep. stuff. So I had played it. I thought it was kind of interesting, but I I wasn't trying to recreate that because I didn't actually personally like it as a game. Um, but I really liked all the books I had read on that. There was this book called The Establishment of the European Hegemony. It was I mean, a serious history book on this uh, that I had read for my degree. And, and I kind of based it, you know, some of the idea. But the idea was you, you had this huge, and it was a completely dark map, and then you would move this little Columbus-looking ship, and you would discover part of it, and then you'd move a guy out, you could build a city or whatever. And, and at some point, um, that came to other people's attention. You know, I, I guess people would look at what I would see. And somehow it kind of trickled through to um, the strategy group or whatever, which was like two guys. It was right. like Sid and Jeff Briggs. And, you know, so Jeff... Uh, Bruce Shelley had left. He had been the, produ- uh, the producer side designer right. of, of Civ One, And he had left because his wife got a job in Chicago, Chicago or something. Yeah. And so Jeff took over from him as Sid's kind of producer game design. You know, it was like a produ- you got to be kind of a game designer but a producer, whereas, you know, Sid was making all the decisions, but you got to have some influence. Um, and you know, I guess somebody probably told him, and he came and, you know, what's that, Brian? Here you're making a prototype, you know. And I said, well, we'll, we'll go prototype. Anyway, at some point I got asked, you know, would it be okay if we showed this to Sid? And sure, whatever. Um, yeah, is that what you is that what you hoped was going to happen, or well, did you not I, I know? Had, I, had, what I you don't were think doing? I had plotted to get into Sid's group, but if but it would have been it was certainly already like the dream job would have been to work directly with Sid. Right. It, 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 that, but I never thought I could get a position like that. I mean, even then, in my you know random, well, let's just randomly do this thing before I get laid off. Right. I don't think I was actually angling to get into. So were you I might doing... have been angling to maybe convince somebody to let us do something like okay. that because I certainly thought the company why you know if the quote unquote Sid games are the ones that are successful, why don't they let anybody else? do any games like that. Right. You know, we should do more of those. So I would be happy were, to work on one in a very junior role, you know, but nobody... So you were aware that they wanted him to make more and he wasn't... I was not really aware. No, no, I, I just thought we should make more. And then they might have said something like, well, and we might, you know, we're having a strategy group now and, you know, send your ideas to Sid. I didn't send any ideas to Sid about new, you know, they might have... But those are things that companies say a lot of the time and sure. then no, none of those things go anywhere. Like, yeah. I, and the number of times I've been around that block at companies is... is <laughs> Is Legion sure? Um, because it actually seems like a fairly savvy business move on your part. You, you, you know, you probably had no idea. Yeah, what was yeah going I on, wasn't. But. I maybe wasn't clear on how savvy it was. But I think I certainly had in my head that wouldn't it be great? Well, if they really are having a strategy group, wouldn't it be great if I managed to just land myself a programmer role in that? Yeah. Um, and so I started programming, and I didn't have anything else to do, and, and you know everything else was kind of going to be coming to an end soon, and so whatever. Um, and, you know, I think this was about the time that I turned down a job offer at Westwood where they were, oh, it really? turned out, making, uh, you know, about Dune, to start Command & Conquer. I think they'd done Dune 2, okay. but, and, and 
about to do the next thing or whatever. So, so you know, other little funny, funny things that happen. But, yeah. um, but anyway, he said, can I show it to Sid? Yeah. And, and I said, sure. And so then he did. And then can you come talk to Sid sure. about this? And... I guess what I'm curious with before you start colonization yeah. was like, what's the percentage between how much of it was it just the, the joy of creating something that you had a natural interest for versus like, you, well, know, you actually see that, that something could happen with this game. That was a golden period of my life in which those were the same, same thing, thing, right? Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, that was a golden time. You know, the, the kind of game I most want to make being the, the right one, you know, to make in all ways for the company and for yep. me and for, you know the world or whatever. Yeah, when you have um, a long career, you realize how lucky it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, so, so I in in the mid '90s, I was in one of those moments, or this was yeah. might have been the early mid '90s. Uh, so it would have been like '93 or something. And yeah. anyway, it turned into, um, yeah. What could you move over to this other building now? <laughs> and uh, uh, and and of course I could. I, I mean, it was a dream job. And then you know I. Um, so I was immediately, you know, relieved of all responsibility. They were still trying to finish the last graphic adventure, and, and um, you know, I, and there were maybe a, a few hard feelings by by some. <laughs> my boss was like, he knew what was, you know, he sure, knew, he was you know, that look, you know, it, that it was that or not be employed in a few months. Yeah. Um, but not everybody realized that. Of course. Did you and, did you think of yourself that you were going to be the game designer for this game? Well, not real, not exactly, really. I, I did think, well, like once it was like, oh, I can come over and be in the Sid, yeah. you know, the Sid group. Well, that was what Sid did. He was a programmer and a game designer. Yep, um, and. And I, so I was certainly very interested in doing some game design. I knew I wasn't um, going to be all that. I, I wasn't an expert at it. You know, I thought I knew a lot, but I also kind of knew there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. So, you know, like working. So, you know, I think the thing I originally kind of we all agreed to was that, well, Sid would be the lead designer and I would be a designer. Yeah. Um, but Sid was always very... Um, very supportive in the sense of, well, you know, well, this game was your idea, yep, yep. and so you should have a lot of ownership of it. Yeah, and I've heard Sid say the same things. Yeah, there, right, right, there right. The, clearly, there's the games that are his games, yeah. which he is fully invested in. Right. And then there's... Yeah, and, 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 and this was, else. you know, this was a, you know, I mean, at the time, they had never, this was, this which was the first game, excuse me, um... This was the first game where later on they invented the idea of you know the marketing department of calling it Sid Meier's colonization, you know even though he was only partially involved. In, you know that this was that was a new concept then. Um, you know the Sid Meier brand as opposed to Sid Meier personally did a game. Let's call it that thing. Um, so you know that was about to happen, but that, at that point it wasn't. You know that that hadn't happened yet. It was just this is the Brian game. You know Brian's working on this game with Sid in the strategy group. And, and the thing is, he was supportive to the point of, you know, when, um, because of other forces in, you know, the microprose business or whatever, you know, people wanted me to, you know, want to take the project away from me and, you know, or at least not have me be a game designer. Right? You know, right. They didn't want to have the patience to let this, you know, whatever I was, uh, you know, 26-year-old, learn how to game design with what was becoming an important product of the company or whatever, you know, the, no, the, the, he stood up for me and said, no, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to give him advice, but Brian's going to design the game. And, do you think, do you uh, think he's, he said that because he saw 
talent in you, or because oh, probably he felt partially. The right thing? Well, I mean, he probably also didn't want to take it over personally. I mean, that was I'm sure that, that was, was thing being pushed were. was here. Sure. Said you write the rest of it, you know, and 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 I, I can certainly tell you, you know, from my perspective now that well, I don't want to like have somebody else's game yeah, have to sure. take it over when it's almost done and just yeah. do the crunch on it when all the. You know, I mean, I so I totally understand that perspective too. You know, there might have been some self-preservation involved yeah. in. Uh, but there weren't other theoretical game designers besides Sid that would have been pushed. There, no, no, I don't think there was anybody else who was being pushed. It was kind of me or him. You know, <laughs> right. I think were the choices, the logical choices. That, yeah. uh, and and you know, and he certainly stood up for. Oh no, this is Brian's game, and yeah. Brian should do it. And all you know, all along, he was also giving me constructive advice. Yeah. You know, and he would say, "Oh, well, you know, here's the really important Sid Meier rule, and that's that whenever you're not sure about a number and you want to change it, you should double it or have it." Yeah. You know, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, he explained why it's important, yeah. and yeah. you know, no, don't just increase it by you know. 10% or something, just double it and check, you know, so then you can really feel what it's like if things move twice as fast, you yep. know, you'll, you won't be wondering if you've changed it enough, and then, then you can scale it back if you have to, but right. hey, he totally taught me a bunch of those things. And was he saying that the uh, the players should be having the fun, not the computer back then? Well, he had already, that was already a part of his, you know, just philosophy, and yep. he, you know, I had seen his it wasn't PowerPoints, it was actual overhead projector slides okay. on pieces of cellophane, but, but I had seen his presentation that he had given to us at various, you know, an off-site that we did one time. That, so I knew about all that, that stuff, but, but, it, but it, was, so it was really more the, the day-to-day working, you know, the actual, these are the things. And another important one that comes back to me, or this was, like the, this was probably the very first piece of actual advice he gave to specifically me for my project as opposed to general um, general Sid stuff um, was when I was first starting colonization, you know, I'd done my little prototype, but it didn't do all that much yeah. stuff. And, I, and, and he was like, and again, it just, just like that very first prototype I got my job with, it wasn't a game. It was just a little experience about a ship and just exploring, you know, it didn't have any rules or anything like that. And I was sort of like, well, what should I do next? You know, how do I turn it into a game? I, you know, I, that's some sort of overwhelmed sounding question like that. He said, oh, well, first make it play one turn. You know, first worry about it playing one, one turn, turn and yeah. then play ten turns and then a hundred turns, you know, because I would be getting, thinking, oh my gosh, it's got to have trade and an economy and all this other stuff. And you and, were thinking you would need to design that. You sit down. Right, and right. All that yeah. Stuff. I mean I, I certainly yeah, I hadn't whatever. hadn't really learned the just build the prototype out thing. Um yet. I mean yeah, I'd heard him say that's how you do things, but but yeah, I mean there were that was that was like the very first piece of direct Sid to Brian advice that got given is well first make it play one turn, then make it play ten and then worry about playing a hundred and like oh, and I went, and that helped a lot. That that really helped a lot because it gave me a focus. Of, okay, so I'm only going to work on you know stuff that happens right at the very you know you're gonna. So what's the first thing after your ship gets there? Well, you better found Jamestown, right? So let's make that part of it, and right. uh, and, and you know, and it went from there. And I did make it play one turn and ten turns and a hundred turns and and so on. Sure. And, and that was that was very. So, useful stuff. So how did some of the unique, like colonization is a very different model for how it handles workers and resources and, 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 uh, and, well, and my, the same game. So to the extent I had knowledge. a vision, so I had two pieces of quote-unquote vision for colonization mm-hmm. that, that were sort of from the beginning. And one was, well, I want to make it about 
you know, colonizing the new world. And two was um, that I wanted to combine all the best things from Civilization and Railroad Tycoon, because that would make a game even better. You know, I, <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that would make Civilization better, it would be cramming everything from Railroad Tycoon into it <laughs> without taking anything out. So you wanted a resource tree. Uh, well, like a whole Basically. bunch of resources, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I, of course, you know, I was certainly thinking, well, you know, conceptually, one of the cool things about... Um, the whole age of exploration was all the weird trade they mm-hmm. did, and yeah. and you know we had to get rum, and they, all the they were finding all they, part of it was economically driven, finding all these different uh, goods, and the, and the concept of okay, well you got the raw good and the colony, yeah. and you, then you sent it to the home it. country to process it, and that made it more valuable. All these things they were they were kind of developing economic theory at the same time they were exploring, and so I was interested in some of those things. So I certainly wanted a lot of resources. Um, but I remember being, you know, to the point of it being kind of part of the pitch internally to executives. Oh yeah, we're going to put everything cool from Railroad Tycoon into the Civilization engine. Ha ha! Even it wasn't the engine because I didn't, even then I didn't have the Civilization source. Sure. Um, partially because I don't think I ever thought to ask for it. Um, it when we started Civ Two, I, I think I asked, Hey, uh, you know, do you still have the Civ One source around just for me to look at? Um, and I think he sent it to me at that point. I think that was the first time I'd ever seen the Civilization source was, you know, after colonization was was. Either That's funny because yeah, or, my assumption would have definitely been different. That it was, you know, colonization was you know you take civilization, the civilization right, source right, code no, and you no, start modding totally it. different engine, yeah. uh, and you know, and part of it I think you know companies get so ridiculous. You, People that don't actually understand technology yeah. get all fearful about, oh, no, if someone ever saw the source code, then, oh, no, we would lose some advantage, even internally, wow. so we must never let anyone in. And I, I, I think if I'd ever just thought to ask Sid, he would have just instantly given Definitely me the disk, because that's what ultimately happened, right? But, yeah. but, you know, if you ever asked... When, you know, I think when I was a junior programmer, you know, I, I said, hey, can I look at the source for civilization? Or something? No, you know, the, the, you know to, if you ask a power that be, you know, I, I think I've just foolishly asked the wrong kind yeah. of class of person. Right. Um, you know, asking my boss rather than asking the engineer, you know, you yeah. just get a different answer. And, and so, um, so even Civ 2 wasn't written from the Civ One source code, but it was at least written with it available for viewing. If there was some, yeah. you know, how what how do you do that trick now, without having you, to reinvent the did wheel? Did you do that? Because Sid is a very distinct coding style mm-hmm. that if you're I, not used well, to. I was, you know, now I remember I'm a child of the '80s, so sure. there were a lot of distinct coding styles, and a lot of my job, you know, my early jobs had been someone's freaking Fortran program craziness sure. and. So I mean, I was good at reading other people's code, and right. I, I actually found Sid's coding style perfectly fine. I mean, it was, um, it wasn't my coding style, and it wasn't how I did things, but I found it very intuitive and easy to read. I could totally decode his stuff and figure out, oh, okay, so that's the, you know, that's how he goes about that, and I could either say, okay, well, I'm going to do it that way too, or no, I'm going to do some other thing, and. Uh, um, I didn't, uh, so I didn't. I didn't have that. I, I remember, you know, at Microprose, you know, people always talked about Sid's code style being very different. I just thought, well, it's just another code style, and sure. I was perfectly comfortable. But I think I was more fluent in multiple languages, multiple code styles, and and so that was one one place where you know my brain just didn't have that particular. You know, I didn't have to program the one uh, the one way, which I think is you know 
was a virtue I had when I was a young programmer that I really don't have anymore. You know, I, somewhere somewhere in my 30s, I lost the ability to be fluent in all uh, in right. all people's coding styles. You know, <laughs> uh, that, that I have to kind of stay with my own way of doing things, or I just won't right. won't make progress as, as quickly. So. Okay. But so for for with Civ two, you were you did get some definite value in looking at how he did some of the trickier parts. Yeah, yeah, just just for a few things because I of course by the time I was doing Civ two, I had already written colonization right. So I mean I was thoroughly versed in almost everything that you need to do to make one of these games. Yeah. But there would be little places like well okay. So we got to have you know well how how what's the basic paradigm for the diplomacy you know just to right. And a lot of times it was just, I just want to get something running. You know, even when I knew I wanted to change, because I knew I wanted to change a bunch of stuff about the diplomacy, but I wanted to just get it running first. Uh, you know, because by that, by the time I was doing Civ two, I was fully versed in the art of how to do a game the way Civ does it. You yep. know, just get the damn thing running. And so, you know, the first goal was essentially, well, if I could just get a, you know something pretty close to Civ one running, then that would. And I didn't do that in all ways, but I would. Certainly started with, um, at the time they were trying to make the multiplayer, CivNet they were making at the time, so there was some Windows code, and yeah. I'd start, I think I used their Windows the engine um, and some of their basic stuff just to kind of get going, and then just started yeah. um, started changing it. So, so, how did, uh, so how did colonization do? Um, my memory is that it sold about 300 and something thousand units, okay. and that was a lot of units for okay. that time. Now, I think Civ 1 had sold 800,000, yep. uh, which was a, you know, crap ton, um, but what I remember when we were doing the graphic adventures is we were praying, like, that 100,000 was a benchmark for a significant company success. That would be a really profitable game if we sold 100,000. Yep. So I remember praying for games to do 100,000, and they would do, like, 40. What, and what did they um, think colonization was going to do? Uh, well, that one, I don't... I don't remember any particular internal prediction. You know, that was still microprose was still microprose owned. We we weren't outside owned yet at that point. Yeah. Um, and what I remember when we launched it was saying, "Oh, let it please let it sell at least let, let it just sell a hundred thousand. Sure. Just one time, can I have a game sell hundred thousand, one hundred thousand copies, right?" Uh, and it sold three, and it was like woohoo, and everyone was excited. I mean, and that was of course why they. Wanted to keep me around right. even when I like moved to England for a year. Um, oh right, because because yeah, I wrote right. Civ two in, in New Yorkshire because yeah. <laughs> my wife had a Fulbright fellowship. So I, I just went in to say, oh, okay, I'm sorry, guy. I've, re- I've loved working here. This has been fantastic, but I'm going to have to leave you because my wife is moving to England. My new wife and I'm going to follow her. Right. And, and they were like, uh, wait. Uh, what if we uh, gave you a project and you worked from it from England? And I was like. You can do that, <laughs> and so you know it was another of these like random. But anyway, it was because colonization had been successful, and well, that's and another odd turn. It was not if you, if you hadn't have had the success with colonization, right? There's that no way they could have had. I would have just that. had no employment Done. for a year, and yeah. then maybe I would have gotten a job somewhere, or maybe not. Who knows yeah. what would have happened? But um, the uh, and I think part of the reason that so. Two important events in the world happened at that point, um, and one was that um, a game called SimCity 2000 was launched and was very successful. And right. The thing that was important about that was that it was 
you know, both a slight, it was a slightly strategy-ish game, and it was um, a successful sequel to an earlier game. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, Microprose was like, Civilization 2000. And that was <laughs> that was in fact the working title. Oh, really? It wasn't called Civ 2 internally huh. ever until the very end. It was called Civilization 2000. Yeah. Because um, of course, you know, back in those days, you named everything 2000 because yeah. 2000 was coming. I, you know, this was going to be launched in '95 or '96, and it ended in '96. We were supposed to launch in '95, of course. But uh, anyway, of course, you would name it 2000. But anyway. Um, that was one thing. So that like pointed up the idea that it was possible not to completely screw up a sequel to the game. I think I think sequels to things had been screwed up many times, both at Microprose and other places, and, and so nobody thought of that as a successful thing. Until oh, well, well, man, if we could do like they did, the SimCity guys did, that would be great. And then they were also looking for a project that they could give to Brian while he was on another continent. That wouldn't re- wouldn't require too much supervision, or wouldn't require as much supervision right. you know, from Sid or or Jeff or whoever was going to be supervising me, um, or thought they needed to supervise me, um, or someone thought needed to supervise me, whatever the, the case was, and, and and that was how they thought of well, hey, if we had him do a Civilization two thousand, well, then it would be kind of like. You know, we could always just tell them, no, go make it back like Civ 1, you know, like Civ was, and that was the, so that was the paradigm. So that was the reason that I got that, and they were like, I remember they introduced it to me as if I was probably going to be really upset that I was, that they were going to put, you know, instead of allowing me to invent another weird idea like Colonizing the New World and make a game about that, I, they, I guess they thought I had my heart set on doing that. Sure. And they, they, okay, well oh, man, can we talk him in? You know, we'd be too mad if we tell him <laughs> that we wanted to do uh, Civilization 2000, uh, which, of course, to me was like the, um, you know, like the, the ultimate dream job. It was right. like you couldn't have asked me to do something that I wanted to do more than make a version of Civilization, you know, to, to go off to another continent all by myself and yeah. make, a, make a version of Civilization, you know, with what I perceived as was going to be a hell of a lot less supervision <laughs> than I'd gotten ever before, yeah, yeah. at least from the, the sorts of people that I didn't want super, you know, I was a little bit, uh, ooh, Sid's not going to be around, but anyway. Yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy to think this in terms of perspective of the expectations for each of the Civilization iterations going right, forward, right. right? Like, could you imagine a company dealing dealing with Civilization VI this way? Oh, right, right, exactly. Yeah, like, no, no, we've got this guy, to, he's going overseas. Even, even the two version of any successful genre, you know, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, course, of course not. Uh, and, and yeah, so that, a completely, completely weird, different way. So anyway, I, I and, and it was never, um, and I, since you wanted to ask this question, um, it was always a a project that the you know the strategy group believe I, I always believed in it sure. and Sid believed in it and the you know the strategy group believed in it and even I think the microprose local management here in Maryland believed in it but the the company that owned us didn't really believe in it very much. So and when did when was microprose sold? Uh, so it was very. Close I don't really remember. It was it was somewhere in those, um, in those you days. know ninety fours right. or so. Uh, 93, 94, somewhere, and maybe even, I can't remember if it was during colonization or before or after, but, you know, it went through, there was a long paroxysm of first going public and then that having problems, and, and, um, but I certainly think that, you know, around the time that I was worried about getting laid off, that was probably during the, the 
worst throes of right. getting ready to get bought by Speckham Holobyte. But they really, you know, that was another flight simulator company. And boy, do they believe in flight simulators. But they believed in their flight simulators, first of all, not microproses. And, uh, and they had a game called Top Gun they were putting out. And I can remember being in this meeting where, you know, a fairly small number of us from, from microprose, but not from just the Civ 2 team, um, the Civilization 2000 team, uh, were in there with the, the guy that was the CEO, and we were trying to figure out, well, why aren't you putting any marketing behind the, the Civilization game? I mean, because, mm-hmm. you know, I guess to me it was just obvious that it was going to be great. Uh, and... And he was like, oh, that's just not going to be nearly as important to us as you know, this Top Gun game. And, and it was, it was going to sell many times the copies of, of that the, um, Civilization was. And, and so ultimately we, we found out what their worldwide lifetime marketing forecast for Civilization Two was. And it was 38,000 units is what they thought they were going to sell. Uh, which to me would be almost like, well, why are you even doing the project? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like I get, you feel like you just have to keep people employed. You know, is this like a charity thing? If you that seems it's crazy gonna... considering the success of colonization. Well, you know, re- remember that that the business track record in the across the industry at that point had not been good on sequels. So yeah. you know, they probably would have, you know in hindsight at that point, have rather me came up with another crazy idea to make a civilization, st- you know, make another spin-off and sell another safe 300,000 units, they would have been wow, you know, more enthusiastic. But It's really weird to think of. The, so, the so we launched the game and it had essentially no marketing. They yeah. did, you can imagine how much marketing you do in that day and age if you thought you were going to sell 38,000 and, and it turned out the answer was about none. And then it just kind of, you know, it, it it did the 1996 version of going viral, essentially, among Civilization fans. Yeah. And it ended up, you know, I think it did around two and a half million, you know, at you know before it was even in the bargain bin, right? Because yeah. it, uh, it was still on sale in stores right up to the month that uh, Civ 3 launched. Yeah. Uh, you could still buy a copy of Civ 2. So they were still selling, even five years well, later. Well, they released some... Even later, oh, and they did other versions of the test of the test of time. They did several expansion packs. Yeah. So the test of time, civilization, that some was other very, thing. Very close to the release of Civ Three. Yeah, yeah. no, they kept like, on. They kept on going. Yeah, no, it was this huge cash yeah. cow for them, and you know, at two point five million units, like the idea of even selling one million of units was unheard of yeah. in my early days at Microprose. I don't think they ever did it. it maybe they did it one. You know, maybe F fifteen Strike Eagle. For the Commodore, or the Amiga, or whatever, maybe that did a million units, but but it was just unheard of amount of. It's like the sky opened up and and the flood came in, and you know some of that was. I mean, that was a whole bunch of things. You know, one of it was well, Civilization was a really good game, and we hadn't broken it. You know, I mean, yeah. if, if I did one great thing, it was I didn't break Civilization in the process of making a sequel, and that was that was my 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 core vision. You know, I talk about my vision for colonization, my core vision for Civ 2 was not to be the guy that broke civilization. Sure. You know? <laughs> so it was like, well, how can I make each thing a little bit better without breaking any of it and whatever? Yeah. Uh, but the other key thing that I think doesn't get enough credit for the success of that game was that it shipped a 
couple of months after Windows 95 shipped. Right. And it was fully Windows 95 compatible at a time when most games were still coming out kind of for DOS and they were all autoexec.bat config.sys configuration e. Right. You know, it was all that clunky stuff that for a brief golden moment when Windows 95 came out was banished. You know, and a few years later we were back to stupid video cards that don't aren't compatible. You know, they they figured out a way to ruin it again, but for about two years, um, everybody, you know, anybody that could run so anybody that could run Windows ninety five could run Civ two. Right. And there were very few games you could say that about at that time. And so any computer that would run Windows 95, including the little clunky laptops that existed. And so for years, I would see people in the airplane, they'd be playing Civ 2, and I thought that was awesome. Uh, and I could remember um, thinking, okay, if we sold 2 million of these, then, you know, and what's the population of the United States, and how many cars are on the highway with me right now? I would try to think, you know, how many people are, are in my field of view right. that have played my game, you know? And it was just so awesome to yeah. have been a part of making something that, that turned out that big. But, it, you know, it was about so many things coming together, as so many hit games are. It's like a bunch of things came together yeah. at once. It was the greatness of Civ One, the universalness of Windows 95, and the fact that we had you know, been smart enough to go and decide, yeah, this is the time to go ahead. Let's go ahead and make a game for Windows, even though Windows sucks. You know, that was what we all thought of it at the time. Um, and, and it all came, and, and you know, and we made, did make some improvements, I like to think, in the civilization system. And it all came together and right. and worked. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize Civ 2 sold that many more copies than Civ 1. That's really... Oh, yeah, it was... It was, it was I mean, you know, of course, they were all, you know, the industry was growing, and yeah. Windows 95 grew the install base. Yeah. I, I, it's not just, it was not merely my brilliance as the right. Civ designer, is what I want to say, is that there were key market forces at work, some of which we had um, hitched ourselves to, you know, semi-insightfully. You know, we, we, we blundered our way forward and managed to hitch our wagon to Windows 95 accidentally, uh, and and that you know turned out to you know it's hard, it's hard these days to think about the new the release of a new Windows operating system being a significant event in gaming right, right. I mean that's not where where things stand today but in the in the mid nineties you know that was gaming yeah. was uh, was that stuff. well games were had an accessibility problem before then yeah I mean, well they did and 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 Windows made it Windows ninety five made it a lot more accessible yeah. in the PC world where yeah. people were running games because, um, you know, Mac wasn't a big market yet back yeah. then. So you probably, at this point, you probably did actually think of yourself as a game designer. You oh, got, by then, I definitely, you had, yeah, you had absolutely. gone through from, the process from of the end of From the end of colonization, yeah. you know, somewhere during colonization, I realized, oh, what I want to be is a game designer. Yeah. And so now I you know, began to identify more, you know, less as an engineer, more as a game designer. Right. Get the, you know, did some engineering stuff and whatever. And I think... Um, the first game where I didn't, you know, title myself lead programmer was probably Alpha Centauri, where sure someone else had the title sure, lead programmer. Right. Um, and then in that in that role, like you know, coming to Civ Two as a, you know, I'm a game designer now. What did you want to do with it? Um, oh, what I want to do? Um, well, I wanted to make the AI better um, and and to actually play the game, play all the parts of the game because sure. they were like you know. 
Civ 1 would just randomly roll a number and see if somebody had instantly built a wonder of the world and, and style, you know, shortcuts, which, which were very... Which is how it worked. Which is yeah. how it worked in 91 and how much memory you could afford and, and whatever. I mean, it, was, it was a good decision for, for that game, but I wanted to make the AI better. I wanted to make it harder because I didn't think Civ 1 was hard enough, yeah. even at Emperor level. And, and I don't mean just introducing, you know, whatever we called it, you know, deity level, divinity level, whatever it was. You know, we did introduce a harder difficulty mode. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I wanted to make, and then I wanted to add a lot of detail. There were things that were kind of sketched in very broad strokes. I thought the diplomacy was very cool in Civ 1, but I thought there could be a lot more. And so we added alliances to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, we added a crude early precursor to National Borders, but, uh, Alpha Centauri was the first game that actually had national borders. Yeah, I don't remember borders. In uh, you you had a, a two hex or a hex <laughs> uh, square zone around your city that if you had a peace treaty that the guys had to leave, oh, they couldn't okay. stay in. So that was a because what I remember hating in Civ One was that as soon as you made a peace treaty, the guy would like just fortify right. right you, yeah. yeah, he would just fortify and just sit there and and sit on your farm uh, and and essentially have passively taken it from you and you had to declare war with them. And so we had and, and, you know, some subtlety of they could be allied with you. And so we had to make AI for them, not only to decide to be allied with you, but to try to cooperate with you yep. in interesting ways. And uh, some rules like that. And I think we did some stuff with the caravans that made them maybe a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make my own map generator. and You know, I wanted to just kind of... Yeah. You know, I wanted to pee in all the corners, I right. mean, for sure. Um, but I didn't have some idea of, okay, we were going to change the one thing and everything else is going to be the same. It was like, no, I want to make everything a little bit better. Right. Uh, so I both utterly respected it as this most amazing game, and I thought, and I can totally do a better job at every single part of this game. <laughs> and, and so that was what I, that was what I tried to do. You know? So it was, it, was a, it was a strange combination of humility and arrogance all, yeah. all mixed into this strange stew of just prototyping and, and yeah. filling with it. Well, you're in a good position with the first sequel, sequel right? Because you don't yeah, have to necessarily right. come up with two or three bullet points. So like, these are the big new things we're adding. Yeah, well, nobody the, then knew there'd ever be a sequel after the first yeah. sequel of any game, sure. let alone Civilization. You know, this was just, oh, we thought Civilization was the ultimate game, but no, this is actually the ultimate game. You know, this is the be-all and end-all of Civilization and no one for the rest of time will ever need to write a game after Civ 2. It was it was approximately the mentality of everyone from, you know, the team to the business people. I mean, it it, it was uh and, and they did not immediately say, "Oh, you should go work on Civ 3." Right. You know, they said, "Oh, you should do something else next. God only knows what." You know, <laughs> go think of it and let us know. But but even then it was not obvious that there's this cycle wow. of you know, every five years there should be a well. The lesson another is civilization. That game. lesson is <laughs> that lesson has now been learned by the industry. I would say. Yeah. Well, no, they figured it out. They figured it out. I'm-